Hello, everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. Today, we are delighted to have Mariah Gessing on our show. She is currently an infection control epidemiologist at Lakeside Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. She received her master's in public health and epidemiology from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm Rasika Mukamala, and if it's your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and outside the classroom. Welcome to the show, Mariah. Would you be able to start out by talking about your background and how you got into hospital epidemiology? So my background is in microbiology. And that's what I got my undergrad in, so biology and chemistry. And then I was pretty set on going into medical school, of course, because, you know, what else do you do with a biology and chemistry degree in your undergrad? And it wasn't until my senior year that I had a professor who was like, hey, I think you would, you know, look into epidemiology. I think you would be a great fit for that. I think that's exactly what you're looking for. And it's kind of how I wound up finding a master's of public health and epidemiology. And I got my master's in 2016 from University of Nebraska Medical Center. And it was really cool because while I was there, they had the Ebola patients. And so that really kind of concreted my love of infectious disease epidemiology. And then after I graduated, I worked at a health department for a hot second, like four months. And I knew that was not going to be for me. And while I was in my master's program, I had done one of my research projects in Tanzania, which is in East Africa. And I just fell in love in, in a hospital. And I fell in love with being in the hospital and conducting epidemiology. And so when an opportunity arose, I chose as infection prevention as a hospital epidemiology in Omaha, Nebraska. So it was perfect. That's so great. A lot of people know what epidemiology is post-pandemic, but definitely pre-pandemic, I feel like it was lesser known about what was being done behind the scenes, but now it's kind of prevalent and in the news. Yes. Before the pandemic, we'd go to dinner parties and people, you know, you'd ask like, oh, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I'm a hospital epidemiologist. And they're like, so you skin like epi? <laughs> like, and I'm like, nope, not like epidermis. Nope. It's, you know, infectious disease. And then they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, like an epidemic. And then it was so funny after the pandemic, everyone knew what an epidemiologist is. And so they're like, so they knew exactly what my job was. Yeah. Which is kind of nice because I don't have to explain it. But then they, everyone thinks that they're an epidemiologist based on reading some Google articles. <laughs> You're like, I'm actually trained in this. You're like, funny, I didn't go to, you know, Google college. I have an actual degree. I know you generally don't have a typical day, but can you tell us a little bit about what your responsibilities are and what like average week looks like for you? Yes, that's great. Okay, so infection prevention, because that's the kind of umbrella that I fall under. So basically, the whole aim of infection prevention is, you know, patient safety, and we're aimed at preventing healthcare-associated infections. So I will just refer to them as HAIs, healthcare-associated infections. And so by doing that, there's a lot of ways to tackle that problem or thing. One of them is I do daily ICU rounds in the intensive care unit. And that is just going along. It's a multidisciplinary team. So we have our critical care docs. We have our critical care nurse practitioners, um, maybe some residents and fellows. We have 
the charge nurse of the unit. We have the nurse taking care of that individual patient. We have the respiratory therapist, the pharmacist, PTOT, all these different people. And we round from patient to patient to patient just to update the plan of care. And I go because there are some things that make people more prone to infections in the hospital. One is antibiotics, long-term antibiotics, because it can cause something called C. difficile infection, which is a terrible diarrheal disease. You do not want that. Other things, a central line is basically an IV that ends in the great vessels of your heart. And if you have a central line, you can have a complication of a bloodstream-associated infection via your central line. So it's called a collapsy, a central line-associated bloodstream infection. So I like to round with these providers and nurses to say, hey, does this patient really need the central line anymore? Let's get it out because you can't get infected from something you don't have. That's my philosophy. And so I'm a big advocate of getting things out that you don't need. Meanwhile, which is kind of funny, before I came to the hospital, most infection preventionists are nurses. And so they kind of, you know, nurses like to sympathize with other nurses and they're like, you know, if the nurse taking care of that patient's like, well, I just really like it because I don't have to poke the patient as many times and it just makes my job easier. Well, then they're like, oh yeah, I completely understand. And they would leave it in. And then here comes big bad Mariah coming in and I'm like, well, I don't see the need, so it needs to come out. (laughs) And so I kind of use my nursing ignorance, but I have been well-versed nowadays. The other one is a Foley catheter. So that's something like a tube inserted into your bladder to drain your bladder when you can't move, maybe on a ventilator, sedated, all that kind of stuff. Or maybe you have like urinary retention. There's lots of reasons why you'd have a catheter. One of them is to track critical INO, so input input and output of fluids. And so a lot of times, and Foley catheters are great because, you know, if you have a patient with a Foley, you don't have to get them up to go to the bathroom every hour or track, you know, it's just kind of easy. It's very passive. And people can get a urinary catheter associated UTI, a urinary tract infection. And so I'm a huge proponent of getting those catheters out so people don't get infections. So that's the ICU rounds. Oh gosh, that's just one thing. So then we do, there's daily huddles and then there's different, you know, quality improvement projects that I'm always working on to reduce you know, HAIs. And then there's surveillance. As the hospital epidemiologist, I put eyes on every single urine culture, blood culture, sputum culture, wound culture, positive influenza, positive COVID, RSV, all the different respiratory viruses. And then just think of like all the different types of testing. Like you can have like HIV testing, syphilis testing, gonorrhea, anything that has to do with like microbiology, viruses, bacteria. I look at them every single day. So any patient that comes into the emergency room or is just like an inpatient in my hospital, I'm continuing to look at those different microbiology reports and doing surveillance just to make sure that I don't see any issues or something weird, funky pop up. And that kind of leads into like COVID RSV influenza. It's that time of year where the CDC publishes lots of information about how many people are hospitalized, what the influenza rates are, all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm the person behind the scenes that is collecting that for our individual hospital. So during the COVID, I was tracking every single patient that came into the hospital that had COVID. So then I could report out those numbers to our local and state health department and CDC. And then the same thing goes with influenza. We have to report out those numbers. 
Do you report RSV as well? I do not. Well, so it's passive. So every there's different things that are reportable labs that have to get say, sent to the health department. And RSV is probably one of them. But like actual tracking RSV patients in the hospital, no, it's just influenza. It's always historically been influenza. And then since COVID came onto the scene, now it's also COVID. Okay, that makes sense. And then, of course, meetings, because what job is not complete without meetings? Right. And then doing education for, you know, healthcare workers, patients, the community. I love doing, I love teaching. And so I love providing education. And then there's lots of like auditing on compliance. Like, how are we doing with our hand hygiene? How are we doing with our urinary catheter care? How are we doing on our central line care? How are we doing with our antibiotic usage? There's all these different things that we audit. How are we on wearing our PPE going into isolation rooms? All those things. And then that kind of leads to like data analysis, figuring out like where we are and reporting out those numbers. God forbid we have an outbreak of something because then I will be doing an <laughs> outbreak investigation. <laughs> those and like when I was a beginning hospital epidemiologist, those things are like, ooh, that sounds so fun because, you know, it's all new. And now as a seasoned, I, I always joke, I'm like a 60-year-old in a 30-year-old body. I'm like, I, please, no one spread anything. I don't want to do all the work to do an outbreak investigation. <laughs> so it's kind of funny how my mind has changed on that. Uh, yeah. We had a patient who, fun, fun fact, fun little storyteller. And Rasika knows I love to sell stories. So this is not even a month into my job. I'm like a brand new MPH grad, like not even a year out of school. I've only worked at a health department. That's it. And then I have like no nursing, no healthcare experience other than when I was in Tanzania. I get a phone call from our infectious disease doctor. And I'm at a, like a high school cross country race because my husband's a high school cross-country coach. And I have my not even one-year-old with me in a stroller. And I get a call from my ID doc and he's like, hey, I'm going to rule out one of our patients for rabies. And I'm like, come again. Did you say rabies? He's like, yeah, I said rabies. <laughs> and I'm like, and I mean, if you know anything about rabies, like very, very dangerous. Most people die of rabies. And we had yeah. had this patient that had come in and he was like unresponsive encephalitis, just like weird things. He was a firefighter, but he also volunteered at the zoo and could come in exposure with like bats. And so just like we were ruling everything out. We had no idea. And the last thing on the list was rabies. So we, you know, have to do our due diligence. So I literally like push my stroller with my child to like some parent I had barely known and was like, make sure he gets to his dad. And I take off running and I like go to the hospital and we're on the phone with our state health department and the CDC, and we're getting ready to transfer the patient to UNMC for the biocontainment unit. It's like this whole thing. I have to go through and find every single person that took care of this patient because, God forbid, he actually does have rabies and he had any like saliva or anything get on a healthcare yeah. worker. They have to get vaccinated for rabies. Like it's whole thing. And while he was there, he had like aspirated a bunch of times, vomited, you know, like, so it could have been very possible. So we're doing all this work up until like midnight. And finally, we get the specimens sent off to CDC. And our doc just was like one Hail Mary pass. He's like, you know what? I just, I think I'm going to test him for West Nile one more time because he had gotten tested when he came in, but he was negative along with all these other encephalitis causing pathogens. 
Yeah. Um, so logically, the next test was rabies. So we sent him off to UNMC. Thank God the rabies was negative, And it turned out that West Nile was positive. It just took a bunch. It took longer to turn positive. We had tested too early. But by golly, mm-hmm. I was like a month into my job and I had to do an entire outbreak investigation for rabies. We still joke oh about it. Oh, my gosh. That's so, so funny. So after that, anything's a walk in the park. COVID, <laughs> meh. So to all of our listeners who have to do outbreak investigations in your classes, know that it is real and you can <laughs> be in charge of it one month after graduation. Yes, yes. <laughs> Pay attention. Yes. So I know it's been in Iowa City, it's getting really cold outside. And I know that means that a lot of people get sick in the wintertime. Can you tell us a little bit about the influenza, COVID, and RSV vaccines and kind of things that the CDC has put out about them? Yes. Yeah. Same in Omaha, Nebraska. It's getting cold. I actually have the sniffles right now, thanks to my three little boys. (laughs) They bring all the stuff home from school and daycare. Okay, so let's talk about influenza first. Everyone, you know, get your influenza shot. A lot of people are like, oh, but, you know, every time I get my influenza vaccine, I get influenza. Or I've never gotten influenza. I don't need the vaccine. Regardless, I always joke, you don't want to be that person who shows up to Thanksgiving or Christmas and you were supposed to bring a side of mashed potatoes. But guess what? You served everyone influenza instead. That's the worst. (laughs) So get get your darn flu shot. I feel like there's not much has changed in our influenza. Usually there's it's like quadvalent vaccine. So it vaccinates for two strains of influenza and two strains for influenza A and two strains for influenza B. And, you know, they look back the last. It's not perfect because, as we know, with I feel like more people are kind of understanding that vaccines mutate. That was like the one blessing with COVID is everyone is right. seeing in real time how much viruses mutate and how difficult it is to come up with a new vaccine every year. I think people didn't realize that with influenza, like how hard could it be to get the right vaccine, you know, vaccine? And you're like, actually a little bit more difficult than you would imagine. (laughs) So don't be a critic. But anyways, it'll still offer, you know, protection. Even if you do get it, it's not going to be as severe. I, I joke one year I got my flu shot. I've always gotten my flu shot and my sister did not. And I got it. And again, it was just like the annoying like sniffles, crappy sleep, you know, one to two days and you're done. Meanwhile, my sister was like face down in the bathroom, thought she was dying. And I was like, and this is why we get our influenza vaccine. She's like, I've learned my lesson. Okay, so that's influenza. The second one, let's talk about RSV. So like huge gains in RSV in the last year. So now we have two new vaccines aimed to protect older people. So I think it's like, and don't quote me on this, 55 years or 65 years. I can't remember which one is the age range of when you should get it. We'll just say older adults. And again, this is like the traditional platform. It's very similar to your influenza shot. It's not like the new technology of mRNA that, you know, our COVID vaccines have. Right. So, I mean, it's been around, the technology's been around forever. You know, we introduce an inactivated, you know, RSV protein into your body. Then your immune system, your host cells stimulate your immune system. And then that way we can recognize the actual RSV virus when it, when it does enter your body, when your body, your immune system encounters it. And so then you, voila, have some immunity to it. And then the overall efficacy for these is pretty dang good. Like, I think one vaccine is like upper 80s 
And then against severe infection, it's like 95% effective, which is great. That's pretty good. Yep. And then they looked at, I think for two seasons, it's like 67% effective. So like maybe you would only have to get this like every other year. They don't know if it's going to be like an annual shot. The second cool thing with RSV is, I know you said vaccines, but I'm going to throw in my monoclonal antibodies is this new thing, monoclonal antibodies for children under the age of two. So this is pretty awesome. It gives them immunity for nine months. So baby born, maybe it's their first coming, like maybe you just had a baby right now. It's November. You could theoretically get monoclonal antibodies for your child and it would protect them through this RSV season. So that's pretty cool. The CDC recommendations right now, just because there's not enough for everyone, is babies that are preterm or have other, what I want to call it. Yeah, pre-existing conditions or that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah, that's cool. But that is like a huge, that's amazing. And the last one is a vaccine targeted for pregnant women, which provides them with antibodies that they could pass along to their baby. And so when their baby's born, the newborn has like protection from birth to six months um, from severe RSV. So it's kind of like pertussis and pregnant women, like pregnant women get vaccinated um, during pregnancy between, I think it's like week, oh gosh, I should know this, like 27 and 33. And that prevents babies. It's not because the mom needs protection, but it actually is just so the mom can pass the antibodies to the unborn baby. And so then the baby is born with protection from pertussis because pertussis is a very severe, awful whooping cough. Um for infants. So that's another cool thing with RSV. The more you know, that's cool. I know. So tell your pregnant friends. Maybe you guys don't have lots of pregnant friends, though. Pregnant family members. Tell anyone that's pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So those, and then lastly is COVID. So you probably have seen in the news, there's this, they don't call it a booster anymore. It's the updated vaccine and it's monovalent act with the latest, gosh, Omicron. I would, I'm would i going to butcher it, you guys, because I haven't even stayed up on all the ver- versions. But even though the, what's it called? I'm going to draw a blank. The variant has mutated and is something new right now. The updated vaccine, everything that is circulating right now has come from that strain. So they're all descendants of it. So you, it will still offer protection and it will still protect from severe infection. Are there a lot of people that are getting the vaccines this year? Is it still, is it recommended by the CDC? Is it highly suggested? What can you tell us about what the CDC is recommending? Yep. So the CDC recommends everyone get it. I don't know how much vaccine uptake has actually happened in the United States and just in our sure. area. Because I just don't think people talk about that as much as it did when the first um, yeah vaccines came out and usually with the same with influenza it usually takes towards the end of the season we f- we get numbers of like how many people were vaccinated that season for influenza so i think we just yeah. it's so new we just don't know yet but yeah highly recommended by cdc to get it it should have six months of protection all that kind of stuff i think the big thing people are talking right now about is you know do you get your rsv influenza and COVID all at the same time do you spread yeah. it out all that kind of stuff for me, 
I personally would spread them out because, you know, I don't think a lot of tests have or research has gone into your immune response if you get vaccinated to all three. And I would rather right. be on the safer side and be like, okay, well, I'm going to get my RSV vaccine now. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, I'm going to get my influenza shot and then I'll get my COVID shot. But again, that's three different office visits or you know what I mean? So a lot of time that's not feasible for people. So right. a lot of people are just going to get all three of them because, you know, it's better than nothing. Yeah. And I think too, it really depends on if you've had a previous reaction also. I know like for me, like when I get the COVID shot, I get really sick. So I personally want to separate them. So yeah. I know for certain that it's the COVID shot that's like making me have an immune response so that next year I can kind of like track it in a sense. It's it's good to know which ones are giving you these like reactions and making sure that you know your body is working. It's sometimes nice to separate them so you know what your reaction is to each of them. Yeah, yeah. So as people are getting sick and people around them are getting sick, what are some good practices people can follow to try to stay healthy or get better quicker? Yes. Okay. So obviously infection prevention. I always joke at my hospital, it's like wash your bloody hands season. <laughs> so washing your hands is the first step. Practicing good, you know, etiquette when you are sick, you know, staying home. Like I have the sniffles right now. So I have a tissue and I'm, you know, every time I wipe my nose and then I go somewhere, I'm like hand sanitizing the crap out of my hands. Right. Um, you know, coughing into your elbow, all that kind of stuff. And then as far as, you know, just be smart when you are out and about, try to avoid touching your eyes and avoid touching your mouth and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, people are going to be getting together for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is in three weeks. I am like in shock. Yeah. So, you know, like that's a huge, it's gathering time for people. So just make sure that you're washing your hands and keeping, you know, if you're not feeling good, keep distance from your loved ones that are older. Like my my grandparents are in their late 80s, so we're very mindful of the kids have sniffles to keep them away from their grandparents. It's easy sometimes to forget all of those things that we learned during the pandemic. Now that we're kind of in the post-pandemic era, when those were all the rules that everyone followed, like right after it was like, make sure you test before you come to Thanksgiving. Yeah. Things like that. And now a couple years after, it's almost like, we need to go back to the basics of what we followed. So it is good to hear about the advice that you have for our listeners and for their families during the holiday season. I know. I think the one thing that has made me the most frustrated coming out of the COVID pandemic is we saw how easy it was to have these at-home tests for COVID. I'm like, by golly, why can't we have these at the supermarket for, you know, influenza and RSV, like a quick nasal swab at-home test? Oh, I have COVID. Okay, now I know I should go to my doctors and be seen and then they can prescribe me some antiviral medication or whatnot. Yeah. And I'm like, it's so doable. I'm like, why don't we do it? And I feel like there's a market because by golly, we saw how many people were obsessed with getting tested for COVID. I would probably right. be one of those people who would be always testing <laughs> my kids for RSV and influenza. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I remember in undergrad when they had the randomized testing and you would get <laughs> yes. an email on Monday and you would have to go by Friday. And I do think it gives some sort of peace of mind, especially when there are so many asymptomatic patients. 
But it's definitely interesting to think about that was so unique to COVID. And now it's not necessarily happening anymore. So it is it is hard. Yeah. And there are so like right now, there are so many other respiratory viruses and crap out there that is not influenza and it's not COVID and it's not RSV. And it's so weird. Like we're seeing these patients come to the hospital and they're testing negative for all this other stuff. Rhinoenterovirus is really popular right now. And then so is I'm seeing a lot of metapneumovirus. So those are the two viruses that are circulating. Not much COVID, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Hopefully it stays that way. Yeah. You know what? I would totally be okay. Everyone keeps you know, saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling, that we're going to mm-hmm. have this huge uproar in COVID. And it just hasn't happened. So I don't know if the old girl just doesn't have it in her anymore. And she's just going <laughs> to, we know influenza and RSV do it. They're, they're, yeah. Yeah. They were like, hold my beer for a couple years. And now they're back at now it. Now they're back with a vengeance. They are. They're like, you forgot about us. You shouldn't <laughs> have forgotten about us. <laughs> So during your career, what is one thing that has surprised you about being in hospital epidemiology? Ooh, I guess I thought, I don't even know. At this point, I've been, I feel like I've had an entire career warped into seven years. And (laughs) I mean, like a lot of other ITs, um, I'm one of the youngest one in our CHI health um, region of, I don't even, hospital system. There we go. And most of them are in their like late 40s, 50s, and some of them are about ready to retire. And they're like, you have seen stuff that we have like gone our entire career. You know what I mean? It's just so crazy. So I joke that nothing would surprise me anymore (laughs) after dealing with monkeypox, almost Ebola, Marburg, all the things. I just, nothing literally will surprise me. (laughs) But... (laughs) One of your questions was, what was it? Oh, what is one thing you thought you knew were, but, but were later wrong about? Yes. So with that question, I will say like with COVID, I definitely thought we were going to have a more like overrun hospital system with COVID. Kind of like what we saw out in like New York City kind of stuff. Yeah. So like I was really like preaching the doom and gloom, like you guys, you know, buckle up. It's going to be bad. And it was bad. We were, it was, it was so bad, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it could have been. Yeah. Is that make sense? Yeah. Like it was still terrible. I was looking at other places and we're seeing like how bad it was there and you were thinking it would be like as catastrophic almost yes yes catastrophic it was horrific but it wasn't catastrophic yes yeah no that makes sense to me like i I thought we would have icu patients in our surgical suites needing ventilators you know what i mean like we would turn our ors into icu rooms we did not have to do that thank goodness our hospital was at capacity completely and all that stuff but we didn't have as much of the critical and which was really interesting because like Nebraska's population over the age of 55 is like 22% of the population of Nebraska's over the age of 25 or over the age of 55, which yeah. is very similar to like New York. I think New York's is like 24, 25, 26%. So I really mm-hmm. did think that was going to happen here. Looking at the numbers when I was running my projections and all that kind of stuff to get our, you know, the CHI health leadership, you know, to understand the severity of what could very well happen, you know, like. 
yeah. the truck trailers out at hospitals, you know, refrigerating right. morgues. Like, I was like, this could be us. Right. Um, but something very different that the Nebraska governor did was when they had COVID cases happen in nursing care units or like nursing homes, they removed those patients and put them in designated areas to like isolate. So we had one hospital in the Omaha Metro that took this off flow of patients and then one hospital in Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, wow. And I really think this was the, like this, this was the reason why that didn't happen was because nursing homes had a place to A, put these very sick patients. And so they didn't spread it to everyone else. And then, you know, hospitals are a little bit better equipped to handle, you know, isolation practices than say a nursing home where the ratio is, you know, one nurse or one tech to 15, 20 patients. And so this happened throughout the entire pandemic. And I think it's a huge reason why we didn't have that huge death toll in our elderly population that would have overrun the hospital systems. Yeah. No, that's one great. Thing. And then let's see. Yeah, I don't know anything that would surprise me. I think it's good that you've experienced so much in your career because now you can teach everyone and yeah. the next generation of future hospital epidemiologists what you've seen and what you've learned because I think that's really valuable is making sure that the information gets passed down so that Mm -hmm. The mistakes that maybe you saw like during the COVID pandemic and during monkeypox and all of that, that it doesn't get repeated later. So making sure that it's taught, even if something didn't go right, it's important to know that it didn't work because that's how we improve. So I think it is good that you've experienced all this because now you'll be able to adapt that in the rest of your career. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great segue. Something that surprised me would be that I didn't think I would fall in love with teaching so much being in this role. And teaching is a huge aspect of infection prevention and hospital epidemiology. And that was something that surprised me. And yes, what you're saying is passing down those stories, you know, and passing down the learnings that we've learned is one of my huge passions right now. Hence why I'm going back to school, (laughs) which most times I regret. But anyway, yes. And that's another thing. I'm like so surprised that we don't have a dedicated career tract where we educate for this profession. And I definitely see in the next maybe even, you know, 5, 10, 15 years that that's going to change where, you know, people will go to school to become hospital epidemiologists, you know, go to school to become infection preventionists. Because as we can, you know, there there's this huge population of, because it used to be called infection control practitioners or infection control nurses. And we moved away from controlling something to preventing it in the first place. So a lot of, you know, the big movement infection control happened in the the 1980s, you know, into the 90s. And all those nurses that started this career are retiring and they're leaving. So when I first started, the projections with infection prevention were three out of every five infection preventionists will be retired by 2025. And I think the COVID pandemic, A, sped that up because people are like, I don't need this. I'm about to retire. I'm just going to leave. And so there's this huge, you know, gap going to come up. And now we're seeing a lot more masters of public health like myself come into it. But again, it's like drinking from a fire hose if you have never been exposed to anything like this. So I, I definitely think that's something, even if it was like a 
I don't even know, like a subfield under epidemiology yeah, like where a you focus. Yeah, specialty. Yep. Where you take classes and you learn about things in clinical stuff. You learn about, you know, different, you know, surgeries. I just remember being a brand new infection prevention and having, they like basically treated me like a, a nursing student slash medical student. They're like, okay, you're going to go observe all of these surgeries because I didn't even know like what area of the body are you cutting into? <laughs> And so it just there's so much knowledge that you need to have. And so I definitely yeah. think that would be something amazing to have. I agree. I think it's really important to like keep the lineage going. And especially we don't know what we have in store for us in the next few um, and oh, yeah. beyond years. So we just need to be prepared. And the best way to be prepared is to tell people what we experience. Yep. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing with everyone about your experience and telling us a little bit about the vaccines that are recommended for this winter. And to our listeners, if you liked this podcast, feel free to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and listen to next week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Mariah. Of course, anytime. That's all for our episode this week. Big thank you to Rasika for hosting Mariah on the podcast today. This episode was hosted and written by Rasika Mukamala and edited and produced by Lauren Lavin. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.